Have you ever had your life disrupted? Now, I'm not talking about like a minor disruption, like your reservations to your favorite restaurant get canceled, or, you know, this vacation that you've been waiting to take for a long time, you end up having to cancel because the kids get sick, or, or even the fact that you just started back to the gym and you pull a hammy. I mean, I'm not talking about like minor disruptions. I'm talking about life disruptions. This total disruption, like your life was going this way, and then something happens and everything changes. Like, like this exa- these examples, you, you know, you're forced to make a sudden career change. Uh, the industry that you've been a part of has suddenly become irrelevant. Your relationship with him or her wasn't for a lifetime after all. You've been told the fatigue you've been experiencing is much more serious and permanent than you had hoped. You thought they would be alive and around longer than they were. I think these truths, uh, I think the truth is that these kinds of disruptions are probably more the norm than the exception. God uses life disruptions. Sometimes disruptions are him working, and other times disruption, it's, and, and other, in other disruption, he works in them. In other words, I don't believe God causes every life disruption, but I do believe that God uses every life disruption. I would not be standing here this morning if it wasn't for God's disruption in my life. My, my plan was to practice law in the Midwest and just make a lot of money. But God disrupted my life and made it clear that he had an entirely different path. And I am forever grateful. In our Christmas series, Everything Changed, we are looking at Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. His birth will cause a huge disruption to all things. Truthfully, the best disruption of all. But first, God's plan will cause a disruption in the life of a young Jewish teen. And this morning, I hope all of us can learn from her response to God's disruption. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 26. And it'll be on the screen as we read this morning. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. There's so much packed into these two introductory verses that it would be easy just to kind of skim by them and get to, on to the story. But I want to pause for a second and look at this. The sixth month here refers to the pregnancy of Elizabeth, who Dustin introduced us to last week. She and her husband were well beyond childbearing years and were unable to have children. But because of God's disruption in her life, she will soon give birth to John the Baptist. It mentions the fact that they are living in Nazareth, really more of a settlement than a city. It was hard to get to. There was no real main road there. It was super small. 
It was really an insignificant place. And in the first century, where you lived mattered. Where you came from mattered. It affected your credibility. It affected your status. And no one would want to admit that they were from Nazareth. When I was growing up, when I, right before I started high school, my parents decided that it would be good to move outside of the city of Springfield, Illinois, where I'd grown up most of my life, and out to farm country, and enrolled me in Pleasant Plains High School in Pleasant Plains, Illinois. Yes, it's exactly like it sounds. We had 60 people in our graduating class. It was one of those towns that if you blinked when you drove through it, you missed it. I mean, there wasn't even a stop sign in this town. And if I were completely honest, when I would talk with other high school students, the last thing I would mention is the fact that I went to Pleasant Plains High School. It was a modern version of Nazareth. We also know from another account of this narrative in Matthew that Joseph is from another small village called Bethlehem. It's located five miles, five miles south of Jerusalem, and at the time of Jesus' birth had a grand total population of 100 people. Another small, insignificant town. It's another Nazareth. And, and this indicates that both Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another. That's not a term that we use today. And a lot of people say, well, betrothal and engagement are kind of the same, and they're, they're really two different things. Like an engagement can be broken off by either person, but a betrothal is so much more. The only way you could get out of a betrothal was either to divorce that person or if one of the parties would die. That was the only way out of a betrothal. It was very much like a marriage covenant, but before living and sleeping together. But this is why I share all of these facts. It's because this. We need to recognize that God can use anyone. God can use anyone. And viewing this from a first century perspective, God chooses two nobodies. They are poor, they have no pedigree, no power, they are living in an unimportant settlement, and their roots come out of another unimportant village. On top of this, Mary and Joseph are getting ready to start their lives together. I'm sure they had their hopes and their dreams all laid out. And into all of this, God sends his angel to share with this Jewish teen that he has an incredible plan that includes her. But why start here? What the Apostle Paul writes in one of his letters may shed a little light on this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-29, he says this, For consider your calling, brothers, not... Many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being 
might boast in the presence of God. Did you catch the why? So that no human being can boast in the presence of God. Because it is never about what mankind is able to do. It's always about what God can and will do through us. He works this way today. Your circumstance, your status, your age, your credentials don't determine whether or not God can use you. Even your past, what you may have done, won't stop him. Verse 28. And he came to her, came to Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary has two reactions to Gabriel's greeting. She is greatly troubled. Now, what's interesting about this phrase, greatly troubled, is this Greek phrase is only used in the entire scripture right here. The only time it's ever used. And really what this means is to be deeply confused or perplexed. She's caught off guard. There's no surprise there, right? And then it says that she tried to discern. This, this is like having a conversation in your head. Have you ever had one of those? Like you're like encountering something, you're like, this, you know, what's going on? And you're kind of like talking to yourself in your mind. I mean, that's what's going on here. She's perplexed. She's like uh, caught off guard. And she's trying to figure out what's going on. She's having this conversation about what could be going on in her mind. And it's not about the fact that she just encountered an angel, which I think is hilarious. It's more about what he just said. She's greatly troubled at the saying. She tried to discern what sort of greeting this was. Can you imagine the scene? I mean, Luke doesn't really tell us what Mary was doing because it doesn't even matter. It's so completely unexpected. There were so many things that she has to process at once. Is this for real? Did I hear him right? What is going to happen to me all at once? And she's trying to weigh in her mind what all of this could mean. And while she's trying to process all of this, Gabriel just keeps on talking. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have been found with favor, you have, been found, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God, or the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? I mean, she has just been told by the angel that she is going to become pregnant, and the baby that she's going to have is going to be the Son of God. I mean, like, wow! <laughs> Again, try to hear this as Mary is hearing this. I mean, first, there's this whole logistical issue of having a child. She's a virgin. Luke mentions this three times in these few verses. And then there's more. This child is going to be the son of God. And for Jewish people, 
this second idea that this child would be the son of God would be blasphemy. If this news had come from anybody other than an angel, it probably would have been dismissed. But in the moment, she asked the most pressing question. It's like the elephant in the room. I'm a virgin, so how will this happen? As mentioned earlier, Dustin preached from the passage last week where he introduced us to this priest named Zechariah, who was told by this same angel that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a child despite the fact that they were well beyond childbearing age. And as Gabriel was telling him, Zechariah questioned Gabriel. And as a result, Gabriel tells him, because he doesn't believe, that he will be unable to speak. But here, Mary asks the question, and the angel will answer without any consequence. Seems a little bit inconsistent. Like, what's the difference between what Zechariah asked and what Mary asks? Our, our staff team right now is reading through a book by Tim Keller called Hidden Christmas. And, and in it, he gives a good explanation for the difference. He, he distinguishes between two kinds of doubt. There is doubt that is a sign of a closed mind that seeks to defend against possible answers. Doubt is used as a way to attempt to stay in control of our lives. There, there's another kind of doubt that comes from an open mind, one that seeks answers. Doubt used in this way helps us discover truth and allows us to give up control of our lives. Zachariah's question or doubt came from a place of defense or a way to control. We are simply too old to have kids. Mary's question or doubt sought an answer to discover truth. How will this take place? Maybe you've been a part of a church where you were told you should never ask questions or that doubt is wrong, that it shows that you have a lack of faith. But, but here's the truth. Realize that God isn't opposed to our questions. He, he isn't opposed to doubt. He isn't looking for blind faith. Know that God is bigger than our doubt and bigger than our questions. It is actually through our doubt and questions we can come to know him better. So long as our, 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 so long as our doubt or those questions are a sign of an open and honest discovery of what is true and not simply a way to stay control or to keep control of your life. There are many people who have come to faith in Jesus because they started with an open, with open-minded doubt or an honest search for answers. I think of, of men like Josh McDowell and C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel, each of these men started with the purpose of disproving that Jesus was real, or at least the claims about Jesus were real. But they made an honest search for answers. They didn't just dismiss him outright. And after searching for truth, all of them came to faith in him. Mary has this kind of open 
minded doubt. Listen to what happens next. Verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Gabriel answers Mary's question. He, he tells her how she'll be able to have a child while she's still a virgin, that it will be an act of God. And I, I'm pretty confident that Mary didn't fully comprehend what the angel had just told her. I mean, you mean that God himself is going to be the father? But there are a few things that I do think that Mary understood. I think she does know that just as Gabriel says that nothing is impossible with God. I, I think she also knows that there are potential consequences that will bring her harm if she says yes. Again, she's betrothed to Joseph. This doesn't mean that she can just break it off, that he can just break it off. There's a process for this, right? So when Joseph finds out she's preg pregnant, he's going to have three options to him. I mean, he can divorce her quietly, which means without any formal ceremony, just release her from this betrothal. He can, he can make this public, which means because she has gotten pregnant with someone other than Joseph, Mary, Mary likely would have been stoned to death. Or, or he can marry her. Like follow through with what he is committed to do. But understand, even in this option, both of them will live with the fact that Mary was pregnant before they were married. Which in that time carried significant stigma to both of them that would follow them the rest of their lives. We know from another a narrative found in the New Testament, again, the book of Matthew, that God sends an angel to Joseph in a dream and tells him about all of this and, and to tell him to take Mary as his wife. So this is what he does. But Mary doesn't know this when she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will, to your word. Because there's a third thing I think that Mary understands. She trusts God. And so she does that one thing that will make all of this possible. She surrenders to God, not knowing what the ultimate outcome will be. And probably with a lot more questions that are still lingering. But every one of these unanswered questions are outweighed by the fact that she believes that nothing is impossible with God and that she can trust him. She surrenders to his plan. And I think the same thing is true for us. All God needs is our surrender to him. 
we can trust him because nothing is impossible for him. God, God will never force his will upon you. That's not love. All he asks is for our surrender, our submission to him. This is what it means when we say we make Jesus our Lord. The Lord of our lives. This is exactly what Mary does, not knowing exactly what lies ahead for her. I mean, think about this for a moment. 33, almost 33 years from this moment, Mary is going to find herself standing at the foot of her son's cross. Watching him die an agonizing death, not knowing that three days later he will rise from the dead, not knowing that death and resurrection will bring about the best disruption of all, the disruption to sin and death. By his death and resurrection, her son will make the way, the only way back to God. Everyone will have the chance to be saved from their sin and to be reconciled to God. She doesn't know this. Again, in Hidden Christmas, Keller uses an illustration he heard at a conference. Um, the woman who spoke said this. If the distance between earth and the sun, which is 93 million miles, was no more than the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. The diameter of our Milky Way galaxy would be a stack of paper over 300 miles high. Keep in mind that these, there are more galaxies in the universe than we can number. There are more, it seems, than dust specks in the air or grains of sand on the seashore. And then she said this. Now, if Jesus Christ holds all of this together with just a word of his power, which is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, is he the kind of person to ask into your life as your assistant? Keller goes on to ask this question. If Jesus really is like that, how can I treat him as a consultant rather than Supreme Lord? I know there have been times in my life that I've treated Jesus as more of an assistant or a consultant than Lord of my life. Is there anyone else who can relate to that? Following Jesus means making him the Lord of our lives. It means setting aside what we want to do, how we want to live. It means surrendering our plans, our hopes, our very wills to his perfect plan and will. And we do this willingly and freely, not knowing fully what lies ahead, because we can trust him. I came across this great prayer by a preacher that lived a long time ago. His name's John Wesley. Maybe you're familiar with him. But it's a prayer that really captures what it means to be 
surrendered to him. And my invitation as we kind of wrap up this message this morning is that you, if you're willing to, that you would pray this prayer with me. The words are on the screen now. Let's pray. Father, I am no longer mine, but yours. Put me to what you will. Put me alongside whomever you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid off for you. Exalted for you or humiliated for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. For now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. Amen.